spiritual power doesn't necessarily all come from God. And I think as Christians, that's something we need to be very aware of. Jesus is on the throne. And our future is actually not determined by this election. It's determined by a sovereign God. And he is not going to be surprised by the election results, even if we are. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything. This is the last episode of season one. And Brad and I did something that we'll decide later if it was actually smart or not, but we decided that we wanted to interact with your questions. And now I know there's a lot of people that are doing this thing where they, they take questions and they say, we're not going to give answers. We're just going to give responses. And that's sort of their way of saying, we're going to be humble in this and we might not have all the answers. But we actually do. <laughs> right, right. Well, Brad no. and I called it answers because we reserve the right to give bad answers. So, ah, there it can, you, go. It, you know, we're not sure what's going to end up here, but we did take some of your questions. We got nine of your questions that we want to answer. And first of all, I'll just say thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you for sending in your questions. We're really excited to interact with what you're thinking about and what you're taking away from season one and do our best to give credence to the questions that are running through your mind. Also, some of you are just mean, like these are hard questions. So I don't, <laughs> if you just don't like the podcast, tell us that that's completely okay. We're not offended, but yeah, man, some of these, <laughs> some of these questions, I'm just like, oh, great. I don't even know yeah. how we're going to dig into. I this. was hoping that it'd be like, what is your favorite color? And like, we could just start there. Yeah, definitely nobody cares. We have not arrived in the podcasting world that anybody gives a rip over our personal preferences on things. So it's thank God, by the way, it's uh, okay. (laughs) All right, let's go. What's our first question, Brad? All right. The first question up is, as a leader, uh, how can you inspire your team to move towards adaptive solutions, even when these strategies may feel unfamiliar or a bit more challenging compared to more technical solutions? just you get to answer that one first like go for it man yeah yeah well a little context of what i'm experiencing right now that frames how i answer this question is so we are about an eight-year-old church plant and we won the church planting lottery in south florida meaning that we were able to actually get our own building within about two years of planting and we had our own facility 24 7 it was a church building it was nice Uh, It really allowed us to get ourselves established. And then over the past year, what's become clear is that the owner was going to sell the building. And he did do that. And actually, as of this past Sunday, we have moved to a new location. We moved in with another church and we moved from having our own building all week where we had a service on Sunday mornings to now renting space from another church and we're back to meeting on a Sunday night, Hmm. which to our people, we had kind of gotten out of church planting mode. We were just a church. And so now it feels again, like we're a church plant. So when that question's asked, 
that's what's in my mind as I answer it. We're literally going through this adaptive change right mm-hmm. now. And we've had to do a lot of work to help our people adjust to that. The question was, how can you inspire your team to move towards adaptive solutions? So I'm going to look at that first word there, inspire. And one of the things I think that you can do is just ask the question to your team, what do we lose if we keep doing things the way they are? Mm. What do we lose if we hold on to this way of doing things? And then the flip side of that is, what could we gain if we try something new? Hmm. And so for us, even as we've gone to church on Sunday night, my sense has been that we are going to have more of an opportunity to reach people who would not go to church on Sunday morning. And even in that, I've tried to inspire our people because we've had conversations with people who say, you know what, I wouldn't go to church on Sunday morning, but I'll come check you guys out on Sunday night. And so we've tried to like wrap ourselves around that and say, well, let's actually grab onto that and see who we can reach that wouldn't be prone to go on Sunday morning. So that's kind of a way of giving an example of just saying we've looked at that adaptive change as an opportunity to do something new and really inspire our people around that. Well, yeah, go ahead. I just want to jump in because I think that first question that you said to ask is deceptively helpful. When you said, ask, what do we lose if we keep doing things the way that we are? I think what we really, especially if you're in any kind of a leadership role, I guarantee you dramatically underestimate how frustrated people are from doing the same thing and and having nothing result from it, right? (laughs) Because I know this will be shocking to people, but churches are probably typically on the slow end of the spectrum in terms of embracing change and innovation. And as such, staff and or leaders in churches are going to be more ready for something that has a promise of working than you think they are. And so I think that's a good kind of a default bias to assume as part of this, because I think that gives you some real freedom and invitation and to even just try something and that's okay. So yeah, I thought that was awesome, man. So sorry, keep going, man. This is good. Yeah. And then even trying to answer this question, it clarified in my mind kind of how I was thinking about the difference between adaptive changes and technical changes. And what I've realized kind of intuitively was that because we're making this big adaptive change, we need to clarify and implement as many technical changes as possible to support the bigger adaptive change. And so, you know, to use the canoeing the mountains metaphor, once they hit the Rocky Mountains and they realize they had to abandon their canoes and try to become a different type of people who could get to the Pacific Ocean over the Rocky Mountains, I'm sure that they had to come up with brand new systems. They needed to clarify who was doing what. Hey, you're not a canoe paddler anymore. Maybe your role is something else. And so even as we've done this, where we're like, hey, we're going from having our own building to renting out another building from Sunday mornings to Sunday evening, we have spent a lot of time on technical solutions in this adaptive season. Hmm. We have clarified some things around staffing. We have made it super clear what role everyone has and empowered people to do things without the supervision of their leaders Mm. so that they can own a process. And maybe that's just like set up and tear down, but we've really gone out of our way to push for clarity on these things. And so I think if it resonates with you that we need adaptive change or your organization needs to adapt, 
don't abandon the technical side because the technical side can support that bigger adaptive change. And if you move into an adaptive season without clarifying the technical things that people need to do, you will uninspire them because they'll get frustrated and they won't know what to do. It's almost like, you know, not to overgeneralize here, but it kind of sounds like what you're talking about is the clarity that comes from technical solutions is kind of the training wheels that helps you ride the bike. Like it's the thing that you need to be able to make the adaptive change, not this intimidating, impossible thing. Like (laughs) you're using your example of having to move churches, like, okay, we got to move churches and we have two weeks and go to a new building. (laughs) Like, uh, like, I'm sorry, we just got done with a pandemic. Uh, I'm good. Yeah, Yeah, right, right, That sounds impossible. But if you're like, you know what, but we have a plan and there's a process and we've broken it down into phases by days. And you know what, you, you whatever your name is, John Smith, you, (laughs) all we need you to do is figure out how to load everything into a trailer. Yeah. Everybody else got everything figured out. This is all we need from you. That makes it a lot easier to fathom to make that move. Yeah, that's exactly it. What do you think, Brad? What else could you add in there? Yeah, I think I've been surprised. You know, I I mentioned when we started the second half of the season that I had just got done taking our team through leadership on the line and walking through the technical and adaptive language and the principles and the all that stuff. And I, I think if nothing comes from that except being able to ask your team and then know what you're asking, is this a technical problem hmm. or an adaptive challenge? Mm-hmm. That alone is incredibly valuable because yeah. I'll give you one example. Like, I mean, I know no pastor or and no children's ministry leader has ever had to deal with this, but like we've been having a really <laughs> hard time, especially because we have a lot of young kids in our church per capita having enough volunteers on Sunday morning. And it's like, okay, Wait, is this- it's just because you haven't guilted people enough. Uh, That's the solution. Uh, oh, believe me, I have. Uh, <laughs> Probably too much. They might be a little bit desensitized to it now. No, the sad puppy dog look is only effective when it's not a pastor wearing it. So no, we keep asking this question, is this a technical problem or an adaptive challenge? And the answer, you know, as working through with our children's ministry director, Beth, it was like, actually, I think it's a combination of both. Like we do need to figure out a way to be more efficient and make it easier for volunteers to do the role on Sunday morning so that they don't feel as exhausted and burnt out and feel more excited about it. And also people who are like dropping out the week of, yeah, I do just need to give them a call and be like, hey, I want you to understand I'm not angry, but also you canceling at the last minute has consequences for the people around you. And is there something that we can do to help you be more consistent in this because we really do need you and to be for them, to be able to communicate that knowing that it's a combination of technical and adaptive means like now Beth can say to those volunteers, like here are the things that we're trying to do to make this easier. Are we missing anything? And so you're inviting somebody in to tell you how to help them too. And so it becomes this kind of left and right pedal on a bike that drives the whole thing forward over time. And so, yeah, I think that's just the one thing I would add. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. It takes time too, as an encouragement, like actual solutions, real solutions are not going to be an overnight fix. And the more you start leading your team with some of these principles, the more they're going to start using it. So, all right. Second question. Todd Bolsinger describes a scenario where people treat leaders as just one ingredient in their self-fulfillment salad bar. I love that. Uh, Given this analogy, how can leaders continue to meaningfully connect 
with and minister to people who see them as an optional add-on into their life. Before you jump into this, John, let me, I kind of, I think what this person is articulating, and I could be wrong about this, but, and I'm thinking about this, especially and specifically through the lens of being a pastor, is that there has been a tipping point and increasingly it is rare that someone sees you through the lens of like assuming that you are an authority in their life, right? Yes. Now we have to earn it. So it's a move from assumed to earned authority. I think Bolsinger talks about this in his book, a positional versus relational authority. But I think we're used to thinking about this as pastors, right? Because you know, it's just no longer a thing that people come to pastors for spiritual expertise when they can just, you know, Google an online guru and get some Instagram advice from whoever, right? But I think there's an additional layer of skepticism in trusting a lot of leaders right now that is because you are representing an institution, right? Mm. Because like, your agenda as a leader, it used to be your agenda is my good or my growth. Like that's your job as a pastor, like as a shepherd. Now it's completely opposite, right? My good or, and growth is incompatible with your agenda. And so I need to pick and choose sparingly when to listen yeah. to you. And if so, only cautiously and after I've like run it through some credentialing process of my own making or something. I say that for the sake of illustration, because there is a skepticism and there's more on the line and a higher standard just to get in the door with people now than I think really any of us have experienced leading in other areas or at other times in history. So yeah, what's your answer to that, John? Can you please- <laughs> Well, just to, to dovetail off of that, just this week, someone in my church, we were talking about the next sermon series and someone in the church said, yeah, you know, we need more testimonies because people are going to have a hard time listening to you because you're just a tall white guy. And I was like, no, you know, okay. That's like, were you like, you think I'm tall? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) And then secondly, I, you know, I had a conversation with someone today and we're coming from very different spiritual places and we were got together to talk about that. And she kind of told me that she had to like wrestle through whether she would even feel safe getting together with a pastor And so like, those are some of the realities that are challenging, right? It's like, are we even part of the the salad bar anymore, right? That people are looking for, for, to go back to the question. That might almost be a a promotion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like we take you seriously on some level, but so here's Mm -hmm. what I've had to do in the midst of that. I think I was frustrated for a while that that was reality for me. Whereas people, because I was either a pastor or because of something else, they took me less seriously. But I think what it forced me to do is just to go, do I want to be mad that this is reality or do I want to learn to adapt to reality? Mm -hmm. And I've just had to learn to adapt to reality. The fact that, at least in my context, people see pastors as someone who's unsafe or because I'm a Caucasian pastor, people might automatically write me off when it comes to any sort of spiritual truth, like, Mm. oh, you're just saying that because you're a white guy. So you have, that forces you as a leader, you have to deal with your insecurities and I've had them. And you know, your insecurities come out when you try and prove something, like you try and lead in the conversation by proving something rather than just being like, I'm here. I can't force this person to see me a certain way. I'm just going to be myself. And when you do that, I think you actually come across as like a non-anxious presence So again, even in answering this question, what we're getting at here, Brad, is 
it's not a technical solution. Yeah, yeah. It's an adaptive challenge that you have to morph to. You yourself as a leader have to figure out how to infiltrate into this new space. And that is just a longer process. So it has a lot more to do with who you become when everyone else sees you as just an option among many mm. options for self-fulfillment. Yeah. Now, what you're describing is, uh, on the one hand, really familiar and foreign at the same time for me. Like, So I've mentioned before, I served as a chaplain in the U.S. Army National Guard for almost a decade. And one of the things I realized really early on in that and was totally okay with, as an officer, they have to salute you, but they do not have to trust you. And mm. as a chaplain, if you're busy, that means you've earned their trust, right? It's mm. not because anything is like particularly bad in the unit that you are a chaplain for. It's because like they actually trust you and, you're, and you have things to do now, which is it's always yeah. awesome. Like it's a huge privilege and an honor. So that kind of dynamic, it feels less surprising to me. The thing that I have a difficulty with and I think we're going to get into this with some other questions. So I won't go too far down this road, but is like, well, don't take my word for it. There's some things like you don't actually have to trust me for me telling you, like you should come to church every week that you're in town and you should maybe even think about where you can shift your travel so that you are in town for church. That's not my idea. You don't have to trust my authority for that. That's like Jesus thought it was pretty important too. Yeah. And so I know that it's still like, well, of course you say that you're the pastor that you want more people to be there while you're preaching. It's like, well, I, I know that that's like a thing in the back of your mind, but honestly, there would be a much better avenues and more satisfying avenues. If that were the thing that I cared about, I'd be on social media a lot more often. Anyway, <laughs> uh, sorry, keep going, man. I think you had some more yeah. on this. No, I mean, I think this is just reality for us. And I was part of a church plan in 2004 and like at that point, church planning was pretty cool and people that were involved thought it was cool. And then you and I both kind of started our church planning journey around 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. And we were hearing a lot about the rise of the nuns. And now in a sense, we're kind of like replanning the church now in 2023. And we've talked about, you know, Tara Isabella Burton's phrase. It's the pervasiveness of intuitional religion. And oh, so, yeah. Hey, like, you know, you can sit down with someone and give some great apologetics and arguments for the faith. And they might just go, that doesn't feel right to me. And you're like, huh, okay. But what if you take the time to earn their trust, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said. So I think to answer the question concisely, to meaningfully connect, you have to earn people's trust. Yeah. And in a world that is increasingly shaped toward to whatever degree we don't align or agree is the degree to which I should not trust you for someone for, Ooh, for to pursue yeah. someone relationally and to not just express, but demonstrate care for them when they know that we don't see eye to eye on really fundamental ultimate truths. That's redemptively disorienting on several levels. And it's mm -hmm. rare today. And that in some ways it kind of makes it easier and it lowers the bar in a weird way. I mean, I think hospitality is maybe the most powerful tool the Christian has toward yeah. bridging some of these divides. I mean, obviously yeah. by definition of hospitality. All right. Question three, you mentioned how the experiences and perspectives of Christians from non-Western cultures can offer new insights for those facing transitional times in the West. Could you elaborate on how these insights might be valuable in our current context? 
John, I want you to answer this one first because you have like a lot more experience in non-Western cultural engagement and community than I do. So what, what do you got? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, individualism is the air we breathe and we have to force ourselves to think communally where most majority world cultures don't think me, they think we, and mm. we can do that, but it's more of an unused muscle for us as Westerners that we have to build. We have to think more communally. And so if you're able to rub shoulders with people who are not from the West, like the way that they function together can actually help shape how you function and build a community as well. I remember one of the things that we used to kind of laugh about was just the difference, the difference in some cultural sayings. So, you know, Americans have the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. In other words, mm. be yourself, stand up for yourself and you'll get the attention you need. Whereas I pastored a group of Burmese people with some other great pastors. And one of the sayings that came out from that culture was the nail that sticks out of the floor gets hammered down. And so they're like, you know, it's just the opposite of individualism. They think about the communal aspect. And for us, even to say that, that feels immoral hmm. to like squash someone's individualism. But I think we have to look at what other cultures in the majority world, how they function together and how they think about their families and their elders and their purpose in life and say, is there anything we can learn from that that would help us navigate transitional times? Well, yeah, we would think less about navigating transitional times as me and more mm. as we, which automatically means more relational support, more, more support systems, more help. So that's one is me versus we. I mean, just even thinking about what is the value that is underneath that statement of the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. That's a primacy of, of the whole of the community. Like it's a valuing of the needs of a community such that one doesn't take away from the many in ways that's an equal and opposite value that we have of like the many caring for the few. It's not that one is necessarily more moral than the other. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Please correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, yeah. but like, I think our culture might need more of one than the other, considering yes. what's easiest and comes most naturally to us. Like one's going right. to take a lot more work and maybe we need to value higher because we won't unless that value is very intentional and explicit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in many of these cultures focus more on like shame and honor. And so I remember, you know, having friends who mm. they would not get married until their older sibling got married. Just because that's the way it worked. You, the oldest oh, one gets married first and then you. And so we kind of look at that and we go, well, that squashes individualism. But like, look at the principle behind that, where it's like we, here's what we do. We mm. honor each other. We honor the family positions. And maybe we don't agree with the implementation of that, but there's something beautiful about the way that they choose to honor each other. So the me versus we is one. The second one I would say is we generally look at trials, which are amplified during transitional times, we generally look at trials as Westerners as something that gets in the way of the good life. Whereas mm -hmm. many non-Western cultures look at trials as just part of life. And so to give you some shocking illustrations, I remember some of my friends who were from Eastern Africa, they were in the middle of a massacre and literally 
after the massacre happened, they still bowed and worshiped to God. And you go, what? That doesn't even make sense. But for them, it did because all of life is worship. And so even if they're experiencing the most horrific trial, they still have this sense of an orientation to God and who he is and ascribing worth to him. Now, you know, for us, maybe Mm. that would take us two years to get to the point of pain in our life where we could say, praise God that he's brought me through this. But I think it brings up something for us. And that's that we do think of trials as getting in the way of the good life. Whereas many non-Western cultures think of trials as just being part of life. Man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I left you speechless, huh? No, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I always feel stuck in attention when it comes to trials because I, the fact that we have the freedom to debate, how should we handle trials is itself a reflection of privilege in my mind. Like yeah. we yeah, have the margin true. to be able to have this conversation and to debate it. It's a really good insight. Like an extracurricular perspective, you know, and that is a gift and in some ways, like more the way it's supposed to be compared to your East African friends. And at the same time, part of me is like, I also mourn the loss of something I've never experienced mm. in the gift that that is as well. And so I don't have anything more profound than that, except for just like, yeah, <laughs> man, that's tough. Well, I think interacting with the majority world as Westerners, it's disruptive for us in a good yes. way. And we need it. Yes. I would say that the tendency tends to be that the Western world thinks the majority world needs the Western world. Mm. And now I'm not talking colonization, but I am saying there's probably some of that that is true. But I would think that there are far more ways that the Western world needs the majority world just in terms of making sense of life. And so, you know, even reading scripture together in that context, it was so funny because I was in seminary and I was thinking very theologically about everything and systematic categories. And then I'm pastoring people who half the people in our church are refugees from around the world. And I start to look in the Bible and I'm like, almost everyone in the Bible is a refugee at some point, even Jesus, or they're without a home. In fact, he defines himself as someone who doesn't have a place to lay his head. And then all of a sudden you're like, I've got all these systematic categories, but these people's life experience fits with far more the majority of what people experienced Mm. in the Bible. And again, it's disruptive. It shapes you. It forms you. It makes you think about things differently. Yeah. So as we talk about facing transitional times, that's one way I think the majority world can really help us in the West. Yeah. I think the way I'd answer that question is far less profound unfortunately, because I just don't know how to follow that. Honestly, like there's so much good there to mine. But one thing that has been helpful for me, especially in thinking through the lens of institutions that we've been talking about, is understanding that in the West, the way that institutions function is that they are these kind of technical greenhouses that are a more hospitable space for adaptive growth. And, you know, it's funny, I this person didn't send in a question for this episode, but one of the questions I've gotten as we've been releasing these episodes has been like, well, why don't we see the same kind of institutionalism outside the West? Why don't we see institutions? And it's like, well, actually you do, but it's far more natural to those cultural contexts. We'll put a link to this book in the show notes, but anyone who is interested in this question needs to read the book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. 
Patronage, Honor, and Shame in the Biblical World. It's by E. Randolph Richards and Richard James. And talking about patronage in the kind of ancient Near Eastern and especially the Greco-Roman world, they use this example to illustrate the patronage system that was operating in the time that the New Testament was written, right? Hmm. Okay, so they talk about this example of the situation of a baker. I mean, let's say he's a Jewish baker in Damascus, and they just don't need more bakeries in Damascus. And so he goes to modern-day Turkey into, like, maybe, let's call it, say, Ephesus. And he goes there to expand his trade and pass along what his father taught him. And he goes there, and he has just enough money to get his bakery started. But then it burns down in a fire. And he's away from his family, So there's no kind of kinship system for him to rely on to get back on his feet. So what does he do? What he does is he goes to his friend who has been selling him the flour that he uses. And he's like, hey, who is your patron? My bakery just burned down and I need some help. And so his friend, if he's a good friend and they have some good connections, they'll take him to his patron. Let's say his name is Diocles or something like that, right? He's wealthy. He has some trade connections, some property and a lot of connections. And every day at the beginning of the day, every one of his clients come to him and either asks for something or offer their services if they're needed. And it's this kind of partnering kind of relationship, almost like I think the equivalent, like I think a VC venture capitalist company might be similar in this, in that the economic connection has an ongoing relationship. And this Diocles, this patron would help him get up and running. He would even probably get him access to markets because he needs, you know, a baker to feed the agricultural workers in the fields that he owns, you know, over on the other side of modern day Turkey. So my point in this is that like this idea in an individualist world that the nuclear family is the center of everyday life is a complete historical anomaly that is only possible because of the post-World War II economic boom. And it's actually highly strained right now too. The patronage system that existed during the New Testament era when the New Testament was written was the stability that helped people handle and weather change because you had a thick network of relationships that weren't just friendship and merely social. They were economic. They had obligations to one another. And so in an individualist Western modern world that we live in, we're not even used to thinking about that as a good thing, never mind something we might need on a daily basis and that, or that could be good. And so that's a great example of how like just even thinking about what we've talked about with institutions, how, yeah, in some ways an institution is a fabricated or manufactured, I don't know if it's artificial is the right word, but something that we create, but we are feeling the winds of change far more acutely right now because we are so unanchored and unmoored from institutions. And so seeing how an institutional equivalent operates in a non-Western society, especially in history, is crazy helpful. And it's fascinating to me. Helps gives us some cultural self-awareness. Yeah, that's good. I didn't quite know where you're going with that until you kind of landed the plane. I saw, oh yeah, there is like something really to learn from that and how that has enabled people to weather transitional times. That's really interesting. Especially, I think we have a kind of an innate skepticism of anything that sounds complicated because we just think that, (laughs) you know, simple is often the most correct answer. I think it is, it is often, but also a solution should be as complicated and as complex as the problem is. And the problem is pretty complex right now. It requires a complex solution. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Question four. 
in this digital age, we're all inundated with an overwhelming amount of information and everyone has the ability to share their voice. Man, that is so true. How can we as individuals navigate through this flood of information effectively and not be sucked into the anxiety created by social media platforms? Brad, what do you think? Man, I think there are so many different ways that you can answer this question. And I think it's also challenging because there are some technical things you can do with specific social media platforms that can be helpful on some, but not others. I think the most helpful thing that I have tried to incorporate is just simply some noticing. And what I mean by that is noticing what is on your feed, whether they are are articulating a vision or an anti-vision. What I mean by that is a vision is a motivating why that you are for. An anti-vision is a motivating why that you are against. And so it's not that you don't want to ever like read a tweet or, or follow someone who says that they're against something. To be for something means that you're going to be against something else that's opposed to it. Like that's not kind of not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are voices and perspectives that are habitually, chronically, consistently anti-vision. I just mute them. I just mute them. Even if it's an anti-vision that I think is like something that may be important or good, or maybe they're even right. But if they as a person and as a voice online are more than 60% anti-vision motivated, I might even say lower than that, maybe even 50%. I think there's no way you can be that consistently anti-vision oriented on social media and not be affected by that. Yeah. Like it's going to shape you toward that anti-vision more than for the vision that you are for. And so just noticing that in terms of who I'm following, but also in my own tweeting or posting, I ask myself the question, is this coming from a vision or an anti-vision? And if it's, maybe it's negative, but it's coming from a vision, but negative, then I just try to be really intentional about framing it in terms of like why the alternative is good and why we should be for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just using that as a filter for both the like reading and writing, imbibing and expressing, I think is really, really helpful. In the army, since I talked earlier about you know being a chaplain, one of the things that we talk about is even if soldiers who have been in combat come out unscathed physically and everybody was okay, there is what's called a moral injury that happens when you take the life of another image bearer, even if you're well-trained as a soldier, or maybe it's happened before, and it was all lawful, like in terms of you know international law and military code, et cetera, there's still a moral injury that happens. And that's really clear when we are murdering people with weapons, but we highly discount the moral injury that happens when we're murdering people with our words. Hmm. And yeah. if you are operating off of an anti-vision, it will shape you in that direction. It is going to cause you moral harm. I mean, we've seen this with some people in politics who over the last several years have gone off the deep end. And it's very clear there, but that's only happens to really well-known celebrity level political (laughs) leaders, not to everyday people. But that's how this stuff shapes you. So notice vision versus anti-vision and ration yourself. Honestly, if you don't need social media as part of your job, and you know we can talk about what that means. I would get off. I would leave social media if I could. So interesting. Instead, I need to just ration and have some accountability around it. 
Well, back to that anti-vision vision thing, I think I've seen that. Like sometimes there are people that build their platforms based on their correct assessment of how someone or some other group is wrong. And that's why I think mm. it can be actually quite confusing because yeah. it's like, okay, so I know people who are sort of apologists, but they're constantly pointing out the errors in the non-Christian world but they never articulate the beauty of the gospel. Mm. So it's like, we're going to defend the gospel, which is something we're called to do, but we're defending the gospel because we know the gospel. We know how beautiful it is. So it, that's one way I see the sort of the, the vision versus anti-vision. The whole reason that we defend the gospel is because we have a vision of what the gospel is and what it can do and how it changes lives. Mm. But sometimes people can get so caught up in like pointing out all the errors that that just becomes what it means to be a Christian, you know? So that's just an example I've seen. And I appreciate what you said about social media too. I, I think that's something good to wrestle with. Like, do you need to be on it and what capacity do you need to be on it? So I think that's a good challenge. Yeah. Just asking the question, like, why are you on it? Like, what is the good that it provides you? And if it's anything related to community and a relationship, then like, okay, fine, but let's invest at least that much time into real world in-person relationships yeah. And, yeah. and not rely on it for that. Yeah. Good. I think for me, a couple things that help me, one is the filter I might look for is the difference between self-branding and cause building. So, hmm. you know, there's people on social media that you can tell the reason they're there is to kind of brand themselves. And I mean, that's just kind of normal in our world. But I think for me, if there's someone who's really trying to build something, build a cause, I mean, this is another way of saying vision and anti-vision, but those are ways that I just kind of go, I need to filter that because this is not helpful for me. Sure. Some of this has to do with who I choose to be on social media and how I navigate through it and the anxiety that creates. I mean, one of the things that I try and do is just ask good questions. In fact, I had a conversation mm. today with someone that was based off a question I asked them on social media and like just try and assume the best about each person and ask a lot of clarifying questions. Like just saying that's the way I'm going to operate on social media. That helps a lot because the truth is like, this is a really bad way to get to know someone and actually get to know what they think, you know, in 200 characters, you're reading what they say and you think you understand them. But unless you ask questions, you might actually be way, way far off. So those are a couple of things that have just helped me, during the pandemic, I kind of disengaged from social media for a while just because it caused me so much anxiety. But mm. in pushing back into it, I found like this is the best way for me to operate. So question yeah. five says, continue to talk about social media. Brad, you've talked about social media platforms emerging as counterfeit institutions in our culture and society. Could you talk more about the implications of this? and its potential impact on our ministries, how do we counter these forces? Sometimes it just seems helpless. It's a great follow-up question to the last one. Man, let me define what I mean by a counterfeit institution again, just to refresh our memory, because it functions as a counterfeit institution in that a counterfeit, like if you think about a counterfeit dollar bill, a counterfeit is a mimicry of a real and genuine thing 
with the intention to defraud and profit from its use. And so that's really key here because it's mimicking, social media is mimicking an institution in that it is very similar to what Tara Isabella Burton talks about in Strange Right as a relational institutions forming religious identity through community, ritual, meaning, and purpose. Mm-hmm. There's a community, ritual, meaning, and purpose embedded in social media. But whereas an institution, you know what it is, like it's got a vision statement on a website, a, you know, a church does as an institution, the meaning and the purpose is embedded in an algorithm in a counterfeit institution. Mm-hmm. And so it's hidden. But where social media is different from like cable news media is there is a, uh, instead of just like imbibing and receiving information, you are participating in it. You're engaging in it. That's what makes social media social, right? That's where it crosses the line into counterfeit institution. If that's the case, and if it is, that means it is highly formational. And like I said, it's using an algorithm, but the algorithm functions as a kind of mathematical meta narrative. If a meta narrative is a story about who we are, what we value, our place in the world and our relationship to one another, our relationship to the world, it's kind of like this organizing principle, but it's always in a narrative form, right? Like the American mm-hmm. dream. If you ask somebody, what's the American dream? They're going to be like, you know, being able to afford a, a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog and definitely not a cat. That's Canada. That's not American. <laughs> I'm definitely a dog person, as you can tell. But like, there's a story kind of embedded in that, at least implied in it, right? The way that social media is a counterfeit is it tells us that we are the author of our own story. That's expressive individualism, right? That we are articulating and we're crafting an image, we're crafting an identity online, we're telling our own story in in what we're sharing and posting. The reality is the story the algorithm is telling is one that delivers us more deeply into our desires, right? Mm -hmm. So it is actually, it's an enabling institution as a counterfeit institution. So it's formational and the way that it operates, because it's not just defrauding us, right? It's also profiting off of us using what's called the attention extraction model. And I could break this down very to the minute details, but what it's basically doing is hacking your brain and cultivating a dopamine addiction. So it's just like a drug addiction, except the addiction is not to a drug that is produced externally of you. It's once produced internally. Dopamine is the pleasure hormone. It's what's related to motivation, decision-making, even focus. It plays a role in that. It's what makes you happy and feel satisfied. But because it's using the two A's, affirmation and anxiety, to stoke that dopamine production in you, it's functionally hacking our social reward system at a neurological level. Hmm. Hmm. Everything I just said, that's basically the premise of the social dilemma, the Netflix documentary talking about this. It's crazy and it's defrauding and profiting from us. And it wouldn't be honestly, dude, if this were just something limited to our browser and was not an app on our phone that we kept in our pockets that actually notified us and told us whenever someone was affirming us or doing something that we would be (laughs) pissed off by, if that weren't the case, maybe this wouldn't be functioning as a counterfeit institution. But it's bypassing institutions and becoming primary in people's lives in a way that no other simile has even remotely come close. So what's the impact on that? That's what the question is. It's huge. I know, right? Think about it this way. If you are worried as a pastor about competing with the message that 
people watched on cable news media and being shaped by kind of the outrage there. That was limited to like, what, four hours a day at most, really? Because you're working the rest of the day. You're not able to turn on cable news at your job. Now, it's literally following you around the entire day. You don't have to yeah. sign up for notifications. So what it's no. doing here is it's, <laughs> let, me, let me bring up another dirty word here. We talk about gatekeeping in institutions as if it's only ever a bad thing because you're like controlling the flow of information and like, congratulations, you have been hook, line and sinker, social media propaganda. Social media companies want you to see institutions and institutional gatekeepers as only negative and bad. But in reality, it's within institutions that some of the stuff gets slowed down and tested and then filtered out. And because that's not happening, because it's bypassing institutions and going straight into your pocket, now we're trying on ideologies at scale and at speed, and it's leaving bodies in the wake, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. And so if that's the case- just, Well, just psychologically, that's so much for any human being to process. You can't. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you and I, John, are old enough to like remember where we were when 9-11 happened. Yes. What other event, even remotely, since the era of the smartphone, what other event can you even remember where you were when it happened? Is that a rhetorical question? I mean, if you have an answer I, you, and you prove me wrong, then that's okay. We'll still publish this, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I remember certain things, but none of them are like those type of events. I, I mean, 9-11, I remember getting the phone call. I wasn't around the TV and I remember someone calling me and telling me, but I, I, don't, I don't think I have anything that's like that. Yeah. It's not that we haven't had world shaping events happen since then. It's that we are inundated with white noise such that they don't stand out anymore. Yeah. When you realize how pervasive it is now in that sense, it's like, wow, I mean, we, the war in Ukraine, like that's, that's a good example of one. The January 6th mm. Capitol rights, the only reason I remember the mm -hmm. date on that is because that's the date is the link to the, Part of the transfer title. of power, right? But like, I honestly don't remember where I was or what I was doing when that happened. Those are going to be vanishingly rare moments now. Impact on ministries. Okay, so what does that mean? One, I think the most people walking into a church now, the direction they expect formation to happen is turned upside down. And I think I said this when we talked to Chris Martin, but the average person walking into your church, their default expectation is that the church will be primarily in shaped and formed by them, not them be primarily shaped and formed by the church. Right? We are looking for not theological alignment upstream, but cultural and political alignment downstream. And if we don't align with an institution in those much more grassroots areas, we leave. What that means is disagreement and lack of alignment, there's so much more pressure on that and weight to that than there ever was before. Disagreement- yeah, Especially for the leaders to try and like, oh, you man. know, why isn't our institution this way? Well, because I can't form this- to everyone's preferences. <laughs> and also like you're human. Like there, this is yeah. the weird part about how the way that social media has shaped our expectations. Yes. In terms of trajectory of formation, but also our expectations in terms of like how fast change happens. Social media makes us think that change happens like instantly. We think that change won't happen in a context that like there might be challenges to instituting some kind of change. Like all of these things, if I had to summarize it into one word, expectations are scrambled. And with that comes a lot of 
It's a huge source of anxiety, potential for disappointment, et cetera. And so how do we counter these factors? How do we counter these forces? What can we actually do? Because the picture I'm painting, I know is like, sounds heavy. Yeah. Give me some hope, Brad. Give me some, give me some solutions here, bro. There's no hope. Uh, no. I'm in the fetal position. <laughs> no. So, okay. Let me try to summarize this quickly. Any opportunity you have to develop within yourself and with others, greater self-awareness, the better in terms of how you're being shaped. We have a friend of the show who hasn't been on the show yet, but that's going to change soon. Uh, Mike Graham, who wrote the now famous six-way fracturing of evangelicalism article. He has some fantastic tools that he uses for cultivating self-awareness of like realizing just how much you're on your phone. He actually sent me this PDF that he uses. These are some of the questions that are in the PDF that what they call formation groups go through. Things like, when do you look at a screen for the last time each day? Just the last time, not how often. Like, how can you even track that? And on a typical day, what's your first conscious thought and how do they shape your day? When do you look at a screen for the first time? How do you spend your commute? And there's even like a time and rhythm inventory here, like by hour and by day of the week, where you kind of like fill in like, this is what I'm doing. This is how it's shaping me. There's almost like a formational self-awareness that he's cultivating with some of these yeah. questions. Yeah. And also like, that's just like in terms of frequency, but there's also in terms of like, how do you view the authority of these things? Like, so a weighting, a qualitative kind of engagement with that, that kind of thing, that is gold. And there's unfortunately not a whole lot of that kind of stuff out there right now. So if you find some of that stuff, please pass it along to us because we would love to look at it. That's kind of like on a process end. But like, if you don't have any of these things, you know, a, a tool like that, the thing that I keep telling our people is like, come to church, come to church, come to church, right? Every time somebody comes to worship on Sunday morning per month, that is the factor by which you are hearing more gospel than gossip on social media, right? You are hearing more truth and less spin every Sunday you come per month. So it's like, it's like maybe it's one to a hundred hours a month. Then now it's one out of 50. If you come a second time, right. Then it's one out of 25, like each time. And we're not just talking about mere information. We're talking about the gospel, the power of God, which will operate on us in our hearts in ways that are supernatural in, in addition to natural. And so I'd say like, don't undercut that. So if like, that's the technical stuff, just showing up is part of it, right? Let me just give two examples of some adaptive stuff. I would say when you're trying to lead someone, maybe you notice that they're on social media a lot. I would say the first thing you got to do is just be curious, right? I heard this from a really great organization called Braver Angels. And one of their kind of controlling questions that they use to try to bridge divides is to ask this question, what in your experience brought you to having that opinion or perspective? Yeah. Right. What in your experience brought you to that belief, to that perspective, to that conviction? And the reason they say this is important is because storytelling is a hell of a lot easier than problem solving. And while you're doing that, you are building empathetic bridges that bring down the anxiety that social media is cultivating in us. And it brings clarity on like what actually is important here, because that's ultimately what it's about. It's about the person sitting across from us, right? 
We could talk about these questions all day. We're halfway through these questions. And so I'll pause and maybe we'll come back to some of that stuff some other time because social media is something I love to hate. So wait, Brad, do you have an anti-vision about social media? Just curious. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> you know what? If there was anything I was gonna have an anti-vision about, it would be that then. So yeah, um, I'll give you permission. Guilty. We'll give you a pass I, on that. We'll thank give you, you a pass. Oh, thank you. I'll just talk about institutions more as the vision. So it'll be great. <laughs> what do we got next? All right. So question five, trust in institutions, especially the church, has been a challenge in our current anti-institutional climate. How can one work toward rebuilding this trust when there's a new public scandal almost every month that erodes that trust even more? That's good. Please answer this, John. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Again, bad answers only. I mean, this is everything, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I mean, I I know that that's totally my bias, but also like, if we can navigate this well, everything else is kind of gravy, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, I'm going to just pull from your last question. I think asking a question to someone who doesn't trust a church based on the cultural climate, I think asking a question like, hey, what in your experience led you to not trust the church, this organization, whatever, 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 and figuring out why they're at where they're at. Mm, Yeah. So, you know, what I've found is a lot of people will have a bad experience and then they will project that onto every other church. Yeah. And so to find out in a non-anxious way, even though you're probably being accused in some way or you're having pressure put on you as someone who's a leader and just say, how'd you get there? Tell me your story. What's going on? And then I think in the places where we can align with the person's opinion, like admit to that reality, like do it. Sure. If yeah. someone says a lot of churches are untrustworthy, then I think you'd say, you know what? I can see why you'd believe that. I've seen the same thing as well. But then mm. I think it helps sometimes to pick apart the view a little bit. So the reality is there's a lot of things that are anti-institutional that are just as untrustworthy. You know, I think of you know, a group of people who were sort of against the church in the way they promoted stuff and had conversations that were sort of anti-church. And then it turns out that there was a scandal within that organization. It's like, well, okay, this just isn't a church thing. This is a human problem. So frame the reality of that within the broader culture. Like there's a lot of things that aren't trustworthy. It's not just the church. Mm. It's not just institutions. But then I think there's a real sense of just, hey, are you open to information that might change your mind? Mm. And if so, here's the reality. What do you think the average church is? And someone might say, well, the average church is hypocritical. It wastes money and all this kind of stuff. So I had a great conversation with someone in our church who said most churches don't do anything to help the vulnerable. And I was like, look, I know this is going to shock you, but every single church that I can think of in our County that I know the pastor, they're all doing something incredibly sacrificial for the homeless, for single moms, for people who are, you know, trying to go through the immigration process. I cannot think of a church that doesn't have a specific Mm. ministry to help the vulnerable. And that person was like, really? And I was like, yeah, that's actually true. I'm not making that up. I can list the churches out in their specific ministries. And their mind was blown because they'd been overtaken by this narrative that all churches 
are untrustworthy as institutions because mm. they hoard things for themselves and they don't help the vulnerable. And I'm like, it's just not reality. And so I think, but asking the person, hey, are you open to another opinion or another perspective? And then sharing with them the reality that the average church is a small organization of like a hundred people. It's like us, man. Like we're the average church, you know, yeah. and just trying to make their way through it. It's not some mega church where the pastor has a Beamer and, you know, has been accused of multiple things. Like that's kind of the rarity, but it gets spun as, as, as if that's the norm. Man, the really weird way we are kind of surprisingly naive about how much our experience shapes our view of reality, right? In a really obvious way, like, duh, how could it not? And also, there's something about the way social media is shaped. I don't know what this is personally. Like, I don't necessarily have an answer. I'm sure there is one, though, about like, we default to our experience as the authoritative filter, oh, yeah. of, uh, like how to know whether something is accurate or not. Yeah. In ways that this feels different from like even 10 years ago. Like, we just kind of assume in ways that we used to be far more critical. I don't know why that is. But I think there's a few weird factors here too in that by definition, if a church is doing the right thing for the right reasons, nobody's motives are ever pure, right? But your example of listing ministries, they're also probably not shouting it from the rooftop of social media. Yeah, yeah. Right? They're not like patting themselves on the back because there's just too much work to be done and they're still like focused on it. So it makes sense you wouldn't hear about that stuff either. It's not like a willful direction of our attention toward only the bad stuff. Like we have, you know, looked at two options and we chose the bad one. No, it's just like, well, yeah, the examples of the good are far less visible and require a direct involvement in order to be able to see. And so frankly, I think it just kind of makes sense. The other thing though, this is pure anecdote. I have no idea how consistent this is. I'm curious if other pastors are listening, if this has been your experience too. But one of the things I noticed, especially when the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast came out, which is all about spiritual abuse in Mars Hill Church in Seattle, and that stoked a lot of anxiety. But yeah. almost only among people in my direct experience who have not experienced spiritual abuse. Those who had experienced spiritual abuse, their response was almost more relief. And there's a far more like vulnerable engagement among people who have experienced church abuse in our church. Does that make sense? Yeah. The people who are like freaked out and worried about a pastor or a leader, leadership or, or institutional abuse, corruption, et cetera. The people who are most worried about that or most anxious about it in my in-person direct experience typically are those who have not experienced it directly themselves, but they've just mm -hmm. heard about other people or maybe they know other people are who have. And I just think that's just so interesting because there's something about that experience that has made those who've gone through it, who have experienced abuse they seem to be so much more grateful for and meaningfully involved in the local church. Again, I have no idea how, how common that is, but I think that's really interesting because, and kind of maybe highlights, it's not that this isn't a problem or that institutions don't have a problem. Institutions have a real serious problem right now. They are very weak, compromised across the board in the West. And I think a lot of our anxiety about that comes from something that might happen 
as opposed to something that has happened to us directly, mm. if that makes yeah. sense. So it's good. All right. Have you guys wrestled through Michael Graham's six way fracturing of evangelicalism? Yes. <laughs> we have. Let's go on to the next question. No, I'm uh, just uh, yes, yeah. we have. We've talked about that a lot. You've talked about that a lot. And Mike Graham is a friend of both ours. And we want to make a plug for his book, Brad. Have you read it yet? I have not had the pleasure of reading it yet, but it's. What? I've read it. It's fantastic. Oh, oh gosh. You're killing yeah, me. Yeah, The Great Dechurching. No, man, you got to read this book. And I'll tell you why. One is the statistics that they did some empirical research on to find out who's leaving the church. It blew my mind. And once I read the book over who was actually leaving the church, I then was able to see people in a new light and realize like who I thought was leaving the church wasn't actually who's leaving the church. There's a little bit of stereotyping going on. So it was really eye-opening. But then he ends the book by giving some like hopeful solutions that people can adjust and trying to reach people. So it's a great book. It's worth a read. If you like our podcast, you're really going to probably like that book, The Great Dechurching, as well as their podcast, As in Heaven. Brad, you've engaged that podcast a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to make an extended ad in the middle of, <laughs> of our podcast for it, <laughs> but like it, it would be very easy to because of how freakishly good it yeah. is and thorough. And I think uh, it's interesting to me, just as we've been talking and going through here, how many of these questions are fundamentally about like, how do we sort through an environment oversaturated with information and claims and perspectives? And how do we weigh which ones are valid versus just accurate? Like, what do we do with that? How do we interpret it? How do we trust institutions? Like, this is hard data that they're exploring and allowing the actual data to inform the problem and solution in ways that is just really kind of tragically rare. So yeah, we'll put links in the show notes to both of these. Question eight, I have also been thinking a lot through preparing my people's hearts for the upcoming election. <laughs> oh man, I want to hear more about that because I would love to ask you this question. <laughs> Not talking about political positions, but the disposition of the heart. I'd love to hear what you guys are doing toward that end. <laughs> well, Brad and I have something in common that's traumatized us. I'll forever remember Wednesday, November 9th, 2016. And the reason I'll remember that is because I woke up the day after the presidential election and Trump had been elected to president. When I went to bed, Hillary was ahead. When I woke up, Trump had won. And I was like, holy cow. Our first church service is this Sunday. And I was leading a church that was bipolitical, where people were supportive of both parties. And so we had to plant our church like five days after the election. Now, what's funny about Brad is you guys started your church, the table, like two weeks before the election. Yeah. And so we were really on the same timeline, starting mm -hmm. our churches in this tumultuous environment around that year, the 2016 election. And so, you know, I don't think there's any silver bullets here. And I don't think that's what the question is asking. But how are we trying? How are we thinking through preparing people's hearts? I mean, we can share a little bit about what we've tried in the past. It just so happened that we were doing a sermon series on the reality of different people coming together in the church and actually not just being different, but not liking each other. And so we were looking at passages in the New Testament 
where people thought like, like in Rome where both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were in the church together. And it wasn't just like, eh, you know, they're all right. It was like, no, we really don't like these people because we think they're wrong. Mm. And so we were delving into those passages as a framework for what do we do now that we're here in the church and like people are sickened by each other. And that's the environment we were in. So that's really in the environment that our church started in. But since then, at New City, we've tried to parse out the difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. So we talk about, I've said this several times, sometimes you can be right about someone else being wrong, but wrong about yourself being right. Mm. And again, that's another way of just saying the difference between vision and anti-vision. We're helping people be humbled in their political opinion. And I've done sermon series that have just simply been there to pop the balloons of political allegiance and just try to distinguish between trusting in King Jesus because he is a king versus trusting ultimately in your political party or your political allegiances. So those are some ways that we've tried. We've also done uh, book clubs where we've engaged with some great books like from the And Campaign, where the And Campaign does a great job of analyzing like hey, this political party gets this right and this wrong. This political party gets this right and this wrong from a biblical perspective. And we've gone through that with our leaders or even the book Truth Over Tribe, our friends over at Truth Over Tribe, Patrick Miller and Keith Simon. That's another great book to take people through just to prepare their hearts. Mm. That's good. Yeah. I'm glad you went first on this one, John, because <laughs> I feel like maybe I should confess just a little bit of cynicism around this right now. So, in 2020, so yes, the year of the pandemic, I put a whole lot of effort into, I put together a sermon series uh, leading up to the election called Citizens in Exile and just kind of like did a topical sermon series, like really digging deep into some of this stuff and like what are the upstream principles that we can say biblically and culturally these are true and then allow people to take that as it like kind of develop their lens for voting. And, you know, I remember mm. like one of the things I said is a really wise and important thing that we should do as Christians is like being exposed to a diversity of perspectives and like actively seeking news outlets that, you know, have a diversity of perspective. And it was like a month later, I think there was a study that came out that said like the more that you take in news, the less accurate your memory is on the news your perception of what's actually happening is less reliable the more you kind of go down that rabbit hole. Part of this is just a physiological reality in the way that our brains work. We cannot imbibe all of the information that we are taking in. And I literally, in that sermon series, at some point gave people the advice and what I thought was wisdom that ended up being empirically disproven. And I thought I was being real careful and humble. And so... In terms of how I'm approaching it this time, and we haven't done a whole lot of this yet, but I think the two things I'm going to tell our people, okay, three things, is one, what you've already said, Jesus is on the throne. Mm. And our future is actually not determined by this election. It's determined by a sovereign God. Amen. And he is not going to be surprised by the election results, even if we are. Okay. So ultimately, that kind of reduces what we're responsible for to something far more human-sized, right? Number two, I absolutely 100% percent 
would recommend stop making the issues and the positions or the policies primary make character primary mm. because I think if we're talking about good character, then someone with good character is going to not stand by a position or a policy that should change because there is a better, more human flourishing opportunity in front of you. I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but it's certainly not going to happen if you're talking about someone who has the right positions and wrong character. There's no hope of that happening then. And so I think we've got to recover and it's impossible to know that for sure, right? You just do your best. And if it, you're wrong, number one, go back to number one, right? Lastly, I would say don't pay attention to it as nearly as much as we normally do. Like spend, <laughs> like your vote on position A is infinitesimally smaller than the impact you can make in your direct community that you live in. Yeah, we've talked about this. It's good. Cast the vote. Go for it. Absolutely. But like maybe half the time you would otherwise spend doing a deep dive on candidates, go serve at your local school as an assistant to the teacher or like go bring school supplies there. Or I don't know. I think this still feels like kind of a healthy cynicism because I think I want it to direct our attention to the immediate and the local again. Right. But I just, I mean, I'm increasingly just kind of annoyed by the spectacle and the circus of the election season. So anyway, all right, last question. And wow, is this a doozy? <laughs> okay, John, you're going first, whether you like it or not. Come on, man. I'm seeing uh, more and more <laughs> podcasts, YouTube channels, et cetera, about people experiencing a variety of unexplainable phenomena, ghosts, demons, UAPs, aliens, psychological connections with something spiritual, etc. It seems to be growing more and more normal and less stigmatized to talk about these things publicly. And I'm seeing those kinds of things online more as a result. The church, as shaped by the Enlightenment, and is therefore materialistic, an Enlightenment way of thinking as any other part of society, and it doesn't feel like we have the tools to navigate this moment very well. This world is more than just the stuff we're made of, and I think there's something to us being in a transitional period and this becoming a more potent cultural thing. So the first, this person has a, a few kind of related questions. What is the correct biblical way to engage with recent supernatural phenomena? Knowing we live in a world that is not merely materialistic and knowing that the devil seeks to deceive. John, I'm going to buy you a little bit of time and just like frame this. I'm not sure totally what this person is referring to in the list. The one thing that I'm particularly aware of is the conversation around UAPs, which is, oh gosh, it changed. It's unknown aerial, no, anomalous phenomena, unknown anomalous phenomena. And so- And which kind of used to mean UFO. Yes. In a sense. Yeah. Yes. And there's some interesting news stories that I've been following out there that I'm just like, I don't know what this means, but it's very interesting that at the very minimum, there are people in the government who think that this is real. And so I'm going to pay attention. I don't know about the other stuff, but I think what he's describing is this is a liminal area of understanding for us. Yeah. So this is kind of very like unknown new area that he's asking about. And so John, how do we engage yeah. with this biblically? Yeah. So maybe I'll leave like the UAP part of that. I'm less familiar with that. Maybe you can throw a little bit towards that, but here's kind of how I think about this, maybe in terms of like people having spiritual experiences or people interacting with the supernatural. 
Um, as a Christian, I don't have a natural worldview. I have a supernatural worldview, which means though much of the church has been framed by the enlightenment, this is another area where I think we actually need the majority world because the majority world mm. church more has a supernatural view. Now, does that mean anything that anyone says about the supernatural world is correct? No. But as a Christian, I believe in a realm that I cannot see that has beings and power and interacts with our realm. So I believe in that. Can I describe it? I can sort of say what the Bible says, but... Which is not much more than it exists, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And it does try and interact with us. There is an agenda. There is a war going on. So I think one of the common areas that I try and build with people who aren't believers, but they would say I'm spiritual and they might actually have a way of describing that is kind of like, I have a supernatural worldview too. Like we have that in common, but just because there is supernatural power that is expressed or there is interaction with supernatural beings doesn't mean it's Christian and doesn't mean it's good. Mm. This is one of the problems I kind of have with the signs and wonders crowd that I don't know if you know that stream within, dude, we're in totally different contexts, which is fun because we add to each other. But like <laughs> yeah. there's a whole thread within the church that is focused completely on spiritual signs and wonders mm. and manifesting those as a way to draw people to God. Now, the problem I have with that is just because something happens that has supernatural power or just because a sign and wonder is expressed doesn't mean it's from God. Like the devil uses things to draw people and deceive people away from the gospel. And so you can have something where supernatural power is expressed. You can have someone that's healed and it might be a demonic thing. You know, this is the reality of the deception of the enemy. And I think even with mm. that, I read somewhere how marketers and advertisements, they don't go after your head, they go after your heart. And so when they show you a brand of clothing, they don't list 10 reasons why the brand of clothing is good. They show young, sexy people wearing the clothing in order to go, I want that. And so even as we think about the supernatural, like I do believe that in many ways, sometimes that can function like those marketers, like those advertisers, like you see power expressed and you're drawn to it. And I live in an area of the country where there are people who engage with voodoo and Santeria and, and new age practices. And so this idea of spiritual power is part of the conversation. Hmm. But spiritual power doesn't necessarily all come from God. And I think as Christians, that's something we need to be very aware of. So that's how I'd answer that question. This is a really broad question, Brad, and you have a yeah. kind of a, a thread that you know more about. How would you add on to that? Gosh, I'm not sure how to <laughs> knowing more about something is very relative on this topic. You know, if the UAP stuff, if you're not familiar with it, the New York Times broke in, I think, 2017, a story where there was video of fire pilots from a U.S. carrier off the coast who had video of a tic-tac-shaped craft or something visible that the aircraft systems that they were flying was able to lock onto this thing. So it was not just a kind of figment of their imagination or something visible. It was a physical object. And 
since then, and especially in the last couple of years, as some of that stuff has kind of percolated in Congress, there's now the Select Intelligence Committee for the Senate has been doing interviews, and there's some really interesting developments there for sure. That said, I think that, John, what you were talking about before, to just put a label on your posture, your posture is one of epistemological humility, mm. which is, I don't know, being a quick answer at hand, in part because we want to hesitate to say more than we can know and being comfortable and okay with mystery. And so like what I think I can know is that, yeah, there's some weird unexplainable things. What they are is I'm assuming an explanation, but we need a lot more information and I'm not going to rush to making judgments on what that is. Now that said, something that's really interesting about the way that this is hitting in this moment in a very anti-institutional moment is that we're watching this happen in a time when social media is primary and institutions are distant second. And what that means is on social media, we're seeing a lot of grifters who are hyping some of this stuff and like making a lot more out of it than there's actually any evidence for. And we should be extremely skeptical of broad sweeping claims, especially the more certain they are. I just don't think that that's good. And so like, if you're reading it through that lens and you're aware that, okay, what are the patterns of this? How do I understand this? Then like, it's an interesting kind of intellectual exercise, but man, that epistemological humility is so vitally important. Something recently I've been noticing too, <laughs> this is not a uh, subtweet of the person asking the question at all. I've just been thinking a lot about how, as I've been doing some reading on the UAP stuff, I'm noticing more and more people who are talking about what should be an evidentiary process of trying to understand something. It increasingly is taking the tone and the shape of like a religion. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that there is a, I keep seeing more and more a through line of a meta narrative of like, this must be what is happening behind the scenes, you know, within government. And like, there's a conspiracy theory things. And I'm not even trying to, comment on whether or not I think that's true or not. I just think it's interesting. We've talked a lot about the hardware and software of Western society being post-Christian now. This is something that appeals to demographics that are, I think, hungry for a transcendent meta-narrative to make sense and to understand things yeah. we don't understand. And without Christianity being as influential of a presence I think this is the kind of thing, I'm not saying this is or isn't happening, but this is the kind of thing that new religions are made out of. Huh. Because, let me quote somebody, uh, Elizabeth Newman is also a friend of the pod who's going to be on here at some point. Uh, she's done some incredible research and is an expert on misinformation, disinformation, and radicalization. And she has shared that the single most common vocation among people who are radicalized either into like domestic or international terrorism, for example, are engineers, which hmm. that's surprising, right? Because hmm. engineers are very logical, rational, you know, yeah. uh, evidentiary kind of role. But engineers are also the most who need to make sense of data. And I think there's something about that that makes it use of susceptible to filling in the gaps in data yourself without a healthy network of relationships and community to keep you anchored. Like it's an attempt to try to find anchoring in something. And so we're in this yeah. liminal age. There's things we can't explain and it's confusing 
what the government institutions that are supposed to be experts on this, and you know, you have Senator Marco Rubio saying like these claims of a whistleblower of government squashing secret programs that have recovered spacecraft, these claims are credible and urgent. So he used those words. So like if a representative of a government institution is saying those things, what do we make of that? I don't have an answer, except we should be asking more questions and resisting every single possible temptation we might feel to fill in the gaps on data ourselves. We should have that epistemological humility to be able to be comfortable in mystery because God is not a God of confusion, but of clarity. And so, yeah. That's good, man. We definitely have a challenge ahead of us to walk with people and shepherd them through this liminal time, this liminal space, this time where we're called to walk faithfully in orthodox, biblical, historical Christianity. And yet everything we're experiencing in this world feels so up in the air. Man, I'll tell you, it's been a fantastic first season with you. I mean, I loved these questions that we got and they were hard, man. We had some really hard questions here that we stumbled at times to answer. So I hope that our responses to your questions do them justice. And we enjoyed the challenge and we enjoyed connecting with you as we wind down season one. But guess what? Season two is coming up and we're excited about that. Brad, where are we headed? Yeah, we are going to do something that is going to be interesting. We are going to do an entire season on artificial intelligence. And so we're calling this AI and the Imago Dei in part because, you know, John, our thesis here is that artificial intelligence and its development, especially the kind of popularity and pop level kind of cultural familiarity and conversation that's happening around it and has been for the last several months now, that that is actually an incredible opportunity, not just to engage with the technology. In fact, we're probably going to do very little of the actual tech side of it and really be swimming more in the sociocultural implications and also take advantage of the opportunity that it is to think about and more fully consider what does it mean to bear the image of God? Like, what does it mean to be fully human in a world where artificial intelligence is going to play a significantly greater role than we have ever seen anything man-made ever play. So that's an incredible opportunity to be thinking well and to be thinking critical about it. And so we're going to take the time we need, including a whole season. And John, I'm so glad that you've been so excited and agreed with this idea from the very beginning, all in even. This is called Brad's sarcasm because I'm entering into this theme (laughs) under duress with my arm being twisted under the table, you know? So Brad, you're going to have to convince me that this is worth a whole season. I see it's important, but maybe in our trailer, you can spend some time convincing me that this is worth a whole season, AI in the image of God. Well, we should keep our job as pastors and podcasters because as actors, we're I don't think this is very convincing because that is the plan. The next time you hear our voices, it's going to be us explaining why in a very thorough way, this is a good idea, even if John disagrees and he's wrong because because this is worthwhile and it's going to be awesome. And so maybe you're a skeptic yourself that like, oh my God, the idea of an entire podcast season from two pastors talking about something that they don't know anything about at all. It sounds like something you want to shove a hot poker into your ear in response to. But I would tell you that we have not been talking about anything we know about so far. So why change? 
Right. Right. <laughs> this no. podcast, we've always said it's always about talking with people much smarter than we are. Yes. And we have some incredible guests that we've already started interviewing and have lined up and man, it's going to be awesome. So John, it's been a pleasure. We will too, consider Brad. season one officially wrapped and we will talk to you guys next time. See you soon. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.